0: Well it's perfect for private equity because it makes people less risk less risk loving right so I mean if you're if you have two hundred thousand dollars of debt, you're like, just give me a paycheck like right. I, don't, I don't care about being a business owner, I just want a paycheck like please give me an income for this expensive degree that I paid for yeah. right so I mean, I would say that we see lower than average earnings, probably I mean overall, probably like eighty thousand to hundred on average.
1: 000. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: on average. I mean, but that's also because we're dealing with people that are more earlier on in their career rather than 10 years into their career, right? Right. Um, so, you know, but, but I think that earnings in the profession are trended downwards. Um, pretty... Why, why would you say that? Um, it's just based off of like what I've seen with the number of private equity shops that are taking over the profession. Like when you gain a certain level of monopoly control, you have power over the cost of inputs. Hmm. What is the biggest cost of input in any optometry practice? Yeah, it's, the doctor. It's, the, it's the doctor, right? Yeah. So if I can gain leverage over all of these practices and all hmm. these people are being produced, the other thing that's not talked about too much you know, enough is that there's overproduction of, of new grads. So the schools have this huge incentive to fill their classes with as many people as possible because everyone can get approved.
1: Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Travis Hornsby, who uh, does a financial podcast and also helps doctors, specifically uh, professionals, doc uh, you know, MDs, uh, dentists, optometrists, chiropractors, helps them with a financial plan to get out of their student debt. And uh, we had a great conversation about different practical ways that we can use from a student debt standpoint to know whether or not they need to go for uh, paying off their loans rapidly versus uh, making figuring out ways to make smaller payments and saving longer term dollars by going a route of what, what Travis calls forgiveness. And so in any case, I, I felt like it was a really helpful conversation for me because I am, uh, I've been out of school long enough to feel like I don't understand the, the wrath of current student loan uh, amounts, and uh, it was helpful for me to kind of get a sense of of what he deals with every day, working with optometrists specifically and professionals in general to try to tackle that debt. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and please support those who support us. I love companies who do good for our patients and allow us to take the credit. I'm not sure if you saw this yet, but CooperVision recently announced their Essential Healthcare Worker Program, which was designed to make eye care providers the heroes in support of their essential healthcare workers. If you have patients in these roles, it's available to them if you want to present them with this offer. So, what happens? How does it work? Well, essential hospital workers are eligible to receive one complimentary box of CooperVision contact lenses for each eye. This includes all one-day, two-week, and monthly brands of CooperVision manufacturers, and the patient has to have a current CooperVision contact lens prescription to be eligible. If you choose to participate in this process for your patients, the links will be in the show notes. Yeah, you know, so um, so thanks for coming on. I was, uh, you know, my buddy Kyle Clutie turned me on to you, and um, and what I like about when I listen to you is that you have kind of solutions for different categories and avenues. And I think for optometrists that don't know who you are, it'd probably be very helpful to think through that. Let me give you a little bit of background on me so that uh, you know, my my financial history so you can kind of see where I'm coming from. And I think it sort of jades me a little bit because yeah. I got out of school for a couple things. First is I got out of school in 2008. And my suspicion is that most people that got out of school, maybe before 2009, 2010, um, we, had, we had really good interest rates. Our um, our debt to income ratio was relatively low compared to what they have now. I mean, yeah. I'll be very specific. You know, I I was my optometry school, I was able to pay for all my undergrad. My wife had almost all of her undergrad paid except for like an eight thousand dollar loan. And then in optometry school, I, I wound up with quite a few scholarships. Um, and then I think I walked out with that eight thousand dollar loan plus optometry school was like a hundred and ten thousand. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so then what we did was very quickly, we were turned on to Dave Ramsey and we just Dave Ramsey. So it wasn't just about rice and beans and snow debt snowball and all those sorts of things, but we hustled. So I, I looked at like, well, this is overcomable because I can work extra, uh, and I can develop, you know, uh, speaking engagements and I can develop, um, you know, the ability to just be available to do more work for other people that needed work. And so it was really achievable for us to just say, we're going to eliminate this fast. And so it took us about two and a half years to do that. And right now where we're at, I'm really grateful that we were able to do it because we can weather these types of storms better. But the other side of it is the side that I just have a hard time wrapping my mind around. And, that, and when I listen to you talk about, you know, a, a dentist that gets out of NYU dental school for 600 grand and is making 70 in Manhattan. That that's just, I mean, it's insane to me. So, so yeah. kind of tell me, tell me, um, you know, where I'm missing stuff and cause I know I am, but like, what's the reality today of the people that you're working with and how do they get out of those massive amounts of debt?
0: Yeah. So what was your interest rate on your 110,000?
1: You know, I, I believe it was, um, if I paid prompt promptly, it was down to like two point something percent so
0: 2.625 yeah probably something like that yeah so what is going on right now is there's two kind of loans really the federal government has Uh, there's direct and ffel so the ffel program came out before 2010 direct program came out after 2010 so the ffel program kind of the goal was to keep rates low keep the amount that you borrowed low you know government was guaranteeing all these loans And there's two kinds of FFEL loans before 2010. There's ones that the government owned and there's ones that private lenders own and the government backed. So the loan that you probably had sounds like to me that it's one of these commercially held FFEL loans. Mm -hmm. So right now there's a stimulus plan that gives zero payments and zero interest to everybody, right? So your loan would not be included in that because it's a commercially held FFEL loan because that's Mm -hmm. how the government financed things before 2010 for the most part. And, uh, and so basically what you could do is you could consolidate that loan and turn it into a direct loan now and get that zero payment and zero interest during this, uh, you know, kind of economically turbulent time. So, you know, if you had not already made a bunch of progress on your loan, there's an example how you could save, you know, probably a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks just by converting the loan into this direct loan during the stimulus. So that's kind of a one-off. The, the thing that happened since you went to school is these direct loan programs, like when the government was the direct issuer of the credit, like the prices for school just exploded. Hmm. And so what, what school did you go to?
1: I went to say. Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, Oklahoma.
0: Okay. So I know that
1: I know that is skyrocketed uh, as well, well.
0: So yeah, so here's, so here's an example. So as of 2000 and I think it's 2017, the median debt for students at Northeastern is $143,000. So that's for the class of 2017. Now the mean the mean debt the average debt is 138,000. So, you know, if you're a student of statistics, why is the the mean debt the average debt? Why is that below the median? So the reason there is because there's a lot of people that are getting help with their school, getting help with from parents or spouses, something like that, and they're bringing down that average number down lower, mm-hmm. right? And so all the schools talk about median debt Well, median debt is about as useful as median temperature in on the Earth, right? If you're in the Sahara Desert or the Arctic, uh, you're gonna get killed, (laughs) you know. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's maybe not a the best analogy because if you have zero debt, you're certainly in good shape. But you know, the thing is, is people that have to borrow the full cost of school, they're gonna come out with way more than what those stated statistics are. Our average uh, OD has got about two hundred and sixty-eight thousand dollars of debt of of uh, of of student debt. Let me say that again. Sixty eight. Let me say that again. Yeah. Our average OD has about two hundred sixty eight thousand of student debt. Jeez. Yeah. So why is that? You know, obviously our our debt overall tends to be about a third larger than the actual average across the whole profession. So I'll say that that you know our our statistics are not necessarily represent representative, right? Right. So.
1: Because they're not coming to you unless they, unless they feel like they've, they've got no other way to get out.
0: Right. Or so, no other reasonable way. Right. So, I mean, so that means that probably the real debt is probably more like 175000 something like that. And, uh, and that makes sense because you went, you know, to school 10 years ago or something like that. Right. 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 So, so the, the thing is, is the, the typical earnings of an OD, what would you, what would you say they are? Oh,
1: I mean, if, it depends on the source, but I would, I would guess... Um, accurate is probably between one twenty and one forty.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe, a, seen, little, maybe a little lower we, than that. Yeah. It's, we've seen people a lot lower than that. I yeah. mean, you know, especially in like the bigger saturated areas of the country, you know, so, um, uh, but, but say, say you're making that, well, you know, you can probably pay that back, but you know, the, the reality is, is you might not too. And so yeah. it really depends on what your debt to income ratio, you know what we what we've been telling people for a long time is if you owe less than one point five times your your um, income. So in other words, you make one hundred thousand, you owe less than one hundred fifty thousand. If that's you, then yeah, you can pay your loan back. You know, yeah. unless you're working for some sort of not-for-profit where you could get you know public service loan forgiveness. But if if you're worse off than that, then you should go for forgiveness,
1: mm.
0: just because you know it's it's kind of your debt as a tax or it's a debt. And if your debt is a tax, then you should be able to pay that as a percentage of your income, which you can minimize by doing things like contribute to retirement and trying to mitigate your taxable income, which is a much better deal, right? Right. So, so I mean, you know, I have definitely heard um, a lot of people being fans of the Ramsey approach to paying down debt. Uh, I mean, I, I get the appeal of it. In fact, you know, I was in this uh, optom- optometry school magazine mm-hmm. and they described me as uh, Travis Hornsby, founder of student loan planner a service that helps people who have lost all control with their student loan debt. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's not it at all, man. Like, and then they featured some other optometry school person who did the same thing. Like Dave Ramsey method with 200,000 of debt. Like she talked about how she had been paying it down so aggressively and they were done in five years. So like, so this is going to sound like a weird analogy, but like the, like the, that approach to debt, like the super anti-debt approach, it's kind of like the, you know um it's almost like a religious approach Mm -hmm. and it's not like a religious approach in the sense of like it's it's ordained by a particular faith or something right um but i think it's it's kind of like a like don't ask questions just believe right kind of approach And, and and it's and it's and the reason why it works is because if i ask my spouse to not buy that ticket to disney world and spend ten grand so the kids can see Minnie and Mickey. Uh, If I ask her to do that so that we can put an extra $10,000 in our mutual funds, then guess what? We're going to Disney World, right? right? Because there's no connection of that contribution to your investments and the value provided to your life. But debt makes you feel trapped. Debt makes you feel anxious. So when you get aggressive with your debt and pay down your debt, it makes you feel like you're getting free from a prison. And then that basically encourages you and make, makes you want to save even more, sacrifice even more, gets both spouses on it even more. And, uh, and it's just very emotionally appealing. And there's nothing wrong with like a strategy that's emotionally appealing. But I don't want to just nourish the emotions of our clients and readers. I want to nourish their souls with knowing that they're free from the anxiety in the first yeah. place, yeah. right? So you don't have to follow that rigid let's pay all the debt back approach Especially, and this is what's interesting, that advice gets worse and worse every year because debt is growing at such a high rate because the government provides the credit. And so the prices are going up a lot faster than inflation. So you're giving advice that is wonderful for credit cards, but is awful for student loans that have a simple rate of interest that's interest rates are far below that of credit cards.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, so I, am I'm fully aware and that's why I wanted to reach out to you is that I'm fully aware of the fact that what was beneficial to us is, is not necessarily beneficial across the board. And I also am fully aware of this idea of, you know, I think the Dave Ramsey approach makes really good sense if, um, for it made sense for us and it made sense for our debt to income ratio, but, um, but there is a point where it actually stops making sense from a business standpoint. So um, I can I can buy more of my my business, um, and the amount that I would make in that in that transaction is actually um, worth more than paying more. Like if I had more loans than paying off more loans, right? Like if if even at even at an interest rate of today's, uh, so let's say interest rate is you know six percent or seven percent or eight percent. And, um, and I could pay off that or I could, um, once I have something that's manageable, I could buy more of my practice and I'm going to make a lot more than that. Right. Assuming
0: that we're not in this big, bad, right. Like this, this, uh, state of COVID-19. Yeah. Well, let's talk, let's talk about that. So, so give me a a typical example of like, you're one of your friends that owns their own practice. Like what does that look like in terms of the timeline?
1: Well, in terms of like buying into a practice or starting a practice, I guess. Either one. Yeah. So like if you were going to buy a practice, the, the classic way to do it would be to either get a lump sum loan and, um, and or you would have like the doctor you're purchasing it from sort of finances that. Seller
0: financing. Exactly.
1: And then they, and then you just pay them over time. So if you so use a bank, how much is it? How much would a practice be or how much would, would the interest like rate
0: be? Like the, the, either one. Yeah. The, the practice loan size.
1: Well, so if, if you're doing the, the custom um, number that would be around would be like, let's say you had a million dollar practice that you're purchasing, that the selling rate for that would be anywhere between 650 and 800,000, for example. Now that's yeah. changed a little bit because of private equity and some of the things that have happened. So sometimes what the numbers are going for is an, as much as like one, uh, one, one, whatever you're doing in gross in a year, or, or like if you're talking about EBITDA, they'll go for maybe um, six to eight times. Some are, are as much as like eight to 10 times EBITDA as the numbers that people have been throwing around.
0: So just my first impression is that's absurd for a service business, right?
1: Yeah, and, and it is. And that's, why, and that's why it's even getting harder for students or for new doctors to buy practices because they're competing with a, a um, private equity uh, kind of swirl that is driving some of the pra- the prices, the values, way, way high. Um,
0: right. I mean, so so my thought there is, if you want to own your practice, you could start one, or you could get out of the way of the, you know, the the freight train, right, and try to buy a practice that private equity is going to ignore, which is going to cause that valuation to be a lot cheaper than it would otherwise be. That's right. Right. Um. So, be, but so say you're buying one of these million-dollar practices. You know how much kind of cash do most people have in the bank?
1: <laughs> not much, right? So yeah, yeah. not much. So you're so, you're basically if you're financing, my guess would be if you're financing back at that let's say sixty five percent of of revenue, and you're paying six fifty, my guess is at best you'd have under a hundred thousand hundred. At best, you probably have a hundred thousand to put down.
0: Maybe. Yeah, but most do most require down payment.
1: No. Not that so, I'm aware
0: of. Yeah, so don't do the down payment. Right. Um, so I think that one thing that this is exposed is people really need cash. So what I like to tell people is regardless of your student loan debt, you know, your student loan debt worst case scenario is a payment that you can manage as a percentage of your income if it's on the federal system. And yeah, I get that the interest rate is higher than you'd like it to be, but the interest is not going to kill you because it's a simple rate of interest, right? Right. So if you're on that revised pay as you earn program, you're going to get interest subsidies on your loan. If you're, you basically, your income is below a certain level relative to your debt. So that's going to cut the interest rate down unless you're doing really, really well financially without you even realizing it, Mm -hmm. right? Or there's other plans like pay as you earn that are maybe better for pure forgiveness plays. But if you do want to be a business owner, realize that that's the most important thing, not your student loan debt, you know? And so what you can do with the government plan is, you know, you can sign up for a payment that's based on your income and then when you come out of school, your income was zero. So your payment's zero for 12 months. That allows you to build up your cash. That allows you to build up your savings, build up that emergency fund, that cushion, so that you have the freedom to go off and try to do your own business venture instead of having to work as somebody's employee for the rest of your life. And the thing about practice ownership is I'm going to guess that you probably have more write-offs as a business owner than you do as an employee for somebody. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So did your taxable income percentage-wise go way up? Uh, when you became an owner, or did it stay kind of flat because you used more more deductions?
1: Um, no, my my income has gone up quite a bit uh, as like ta- an owner.
0: Tax taxable income. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yep. I mean, so you could. I mean, but you we could have, but
1: we also have a lot more deductions than I had before.
0: Right. So right. Both, so, on the, on both ends, it's it's advantageous. Like, but your but your kind of wealth growth is going. It went up a lot more than your income went up, just because you're able right. to shelter a lot of that income, right? Correct. Correct. So so the thing is, is as a business owner wouldn't it be wonderful to have a payment that can be eligible for being bailed out? I mean, what we're seeing here is private student loan refinancing is not protected in bad academic times. You have to protect yourself for that. So what we tell people is if you do refinance, don't shy away from like a 20 year loan, but paying a lot more. So we have this strategy called the refinancing ladder. So if you take it at 110,000 in 2015 or something, Mm -hmm. that would have been at a 7% interest rate, Mm. you know? So what you could have done instead is, get it onto something like revised pay as you earn for that interest subsidy, build up your cash, go buy your practice. Then when your payment goes up, now you can go refinance it. Instead of refinancing it to a, you know, a 10 year with a $1,100 a month payment, you could refinance it to a 20 year with maybe a six or $700 a month payment. Hmm. And then you can pay an extra 2000 a month, right? So maybe you pay an extra 2000 a month just because you're, Following that approach of the anti-debt approach, Mm -hmm. you're going to pay that off down to you're going to pay that off in like four or five years. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is you waited until you were financially secure before you got super aggressive with your debt, right? right? You waited until you had that really nice emergency fund. You waited until you're a practice owner. You had a lot more in your life figured out, you know. And then you took that step. And then once you pay down that loan from a hundred thousand dollar loan to a fifty thousand dollar loan, well, now you can refinance it to a ten year loan, and then pay off. Even more aggressively at a lower interest rate, even still. Yeah, so that's called the refinancing ladder approach. That's a strategy that we've coined.
1: Yeah. Do you? Um, so when you go back to taking that approach um, of the financing ladder, and you have um, and you have the kind of the customary numbers. So walk me through that. Let's say that you have your your um, instead of using numbers of well yeah let's use the numbers of people that you're working with. So two sixty three. What's the kind of, if that's the average of of debt that that you're seeing, what's the average income that you're seeing for those same, for those same docs? Uh, And then how do they, how do they work their way out? Is it making an impact on how they're choosing, like the modalities they're choosing to practice at first? What are you seeing as far as uh, all those things? And then how do they work their way out of that ladder?
0: Well, it's perfect for private equity because it makes people less risk, less risk loving, Right. So, I mean, if you're, if you have $200,000 of debt, you're like, just give me a paycheck. Like, right. I don't, I don't care about being a business owner. I just want a paycheck. Like, please give me an income for this expensive degree that I paid for. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I would say that we see lower than average earnings probably. I mean, overall, probably like 80,000 to hundred On 100, average. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On average. I mean, but that's also because we're dealing with people that are more earlier on in their career rather than 10 years into their career. Right. right. Um, so you know, but, but I think that earnings in the profession are trended downwards. Um, pretty. Why, why would you say that? Um, it's just based off of like what I've seen with the number of private equity shops that are taking over the profession. Like when you gain a certain level of monopoly control, you have power over the cost of inputs. What hmm. is the biggest cost of input in any optometry? Yeah, practice? It's the doctor, it's the, it's the doctor right? Yeah. So if I can gain leverage over all of these practices and all these people are being produced. The other thing that's not talked about too much, you know, enough is that there's overproduction of of new grads. So the schools have this huge incentive to fill their classes with as many people as possible because everyone can get approved. Right. So imagine like you're trying to sell a house, you know, and you can build as many houses as you want and you have guarantee from the government that every single person will get approved for your mortgage, regardless of their credit quality. Right. Yep. You're going to build as many houses as you possibly have the materials for, right? Yep. And so that's what's going on with the production of graduates. So maybe 10 years ago, there was a little bit more constraints by the schools that didn't want to necessarily, you know, build something that wasn't fully financed 100%, you know, with mm. no abandoned. Um, but now they can get all the money they want. Um, is that across cross
1: know. profession or are you just yes. seeing it with, it it's is. not
0: just, yeah, it's across the profession. So I would say like the only professions that are doing okay right now are the ones that have mandatory caps on the seats. So for example, like, you know, I would say dental school is not in good shape, but at least they have a little bit more of a cap hmm. um, with number of schools. They have hasn't grown as fast. Other professions that are getting kind of a little bit more, you know, hev- heavily hit uh, by this is like pharmacy. Uh, which has been absolutely destroyed by the number of schools. They've tripled the number of schools. Uh, PT school, physical therapy, has grown a, t- like a ton of new schools. Um, you know, law school already kind of went through that period where they yeah. lost you know, a lot of law schools in the legal recession in 2008. Um, so I mean, for, so, so you, you've got this oversupply in a lot of these professional fields of, of new grads. What does that do? It makes the new dr- grads compete with each other. Right. Right? If your income was supposed to be 120 to 140, and somebody offers you 90, you know, and that's, you know, you've got a lot of new grads. Yep. Somebody's going to say, you know what? I take that job. Yep. And then now you've got somebody that's got a lower cost of input. That's got all this private equity money that's competing against you.
1: Yeah.
0: You know? So I think that that's kind of the, the rationale for getting involved in this. You're seeing this in other industries too, like veterinary medicine, the company that makes the, um, I think it's the company that makes like the M&Ms, uh, is, uh, is buying all of the veterinary practices in America pretty much. Mm, interesting. Uh, and it's just, again, it's just because you can control, you know, the earnings and, uh, standardized processes and make a bunch of money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so then, okay. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same stuff. What's interesting is that it's the same thing. This conversation isn't why I reached out to you, but it's the same thing I've kind of speculated about, um, with private equity. And you're kind of seeing it from the other end of it, uh, kind of a financial end and seeing how that's impacting, you know, our profession financially as well. So then let's say that, you know, your number of, we'll pick 90. So they come out, they're making 90,000 a year. They've got 263 in debt. Let's just use the number of 100 just to to use a round number. Mm -hmm. So you would say then, okay, well, let's say they go in and work for the private equity firm their first step is to do what in terms of their loans? What do they make sure they do?
0: I mean, so if you have 260, 260 something thousand of debt and 100,000 of income, so realize that your savings rate is gonna determine more of your life than your student loans. So what does that mean, right? So if you've got that huge debt amount, the same thing applies. You wanna do 5% to retirement, $100 a month into a non-retirement account, and then do everything you can into an emergency fund. Do that until your emergency fund's got one year of expenses in it. So that might take you a while, might take you a couple years, but you know, hopefully you'll be able to save and, you know, live like a student for the first couple of years to get that emergency fund in the bank. And the reason for the two things about investments is retirement and taxable accounts always have to be prioritized. So you always want to be putting money aside into, um, Investment accounts, and most people never put money in any other place than their retirement account for investments. So that's why I tell people to prioritize those two things. And in terms of their student loans, if they like talk to us earlier rather than later, then I would tell them to consolidate their loan with the federal government so they could get signed up for something like pay as you earn right out of school. And then you can get a zero dollar a month payment for that, for starters, which is going to supercharge your efforts at getting to that emergency fund that you needed. Pay no extra money on your student loans at all, and then maybe your next goal is I want to get to max out my retirement account, or I want to buy a house, or I want to get married, or I want to do one of these big life events. So my suggestion is is do that, do that thing, start the business that you've always wanted to start, right? Do whatever it is that your big goal is, and then you might have to do even more things with your student loans, such as filing your taxes, married filing separately, because if you don't, you're going to include your spouse's income in your monthly payment. Mm. So there's strategies, all kinds of strategies, especially for doctors in places like uh, California, Texas, Arizona, community property States, where there's even more complex rules at play in terms of when you're married, how do you reduce your student loan payment to as low a Mm. number as possible with, with some kind of more advanced strategies. But that person's going for forgiveness. I mean, if they try to pay back their debt, the only reason they would do that is if they had a, you know, very well off, you know, household income that was independent of their own.
1: So then they, they would, they would basically drag out as low a payment as they possibly can make for the 20 year period. And then, and then the idea is then it will be forgiven. They'll have to pay a tax consequence for that forgiveness is the, is the idea. Is that correct?
0: Under current law, yes, but let's be real. Do you think that's actually going to happen after this week? Yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, so, I mean, what what we've seen is that politicians will respond politically to student loan debt. And and it's not just, you know, one side of the aisle Hmm. either. Both Hmm. politicians, both parties will respond politically to the demands and urges of what the median voter wants with student loan debt. Right now, it's not a problem. The taxability of student loan debt hasn't hit anyone, hasn't caused anyone's house to be mortgaged, or hasn't caused anybody to sell their practice. Mm -hmm. And when those things start happening, the demographic that's affected is going to be in their 50s and 60s, which is the the most valuable demographic from a political perspective. Mm. Because, you know, that older demographic is going to vote in every election, and they're young enough to influence a bunch of people around them, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. How do we, so then that, uh, you know, I I wasn't planning on talking politics, but it's interesting to me because how do we, if we, if we're going to forgive all that debt, it it seems to me like that's like one of the biggest upper middle class welfare opportunities. So a guy, let's say a guy that goes in, comes out of high school, goes into a trade, he's a plumber, he uh, works really hard, he never has any college debt and builds his own business, um, you know, he's, let's say he's 40, 50 years old, he's, he's built a business, it's a wonderful business, and he doesn't get any of that benefit. And yet he's going to have to pay. He's going to have to pay for that that uh, loan forgiveness of the doctor who, you know, who, di- who decided to, to kind of use some of these strategies. And I, I, I agree, I think you got to use the strategies that are available to you based on the rules. But what are your thoughts about just the rightness of that?
0: Well, it's like, you know, it's obviously not a good thing. Like, nothing about the system is, is good. Yeah. I mean, if you were designing a student loan system and you had the current one we have now, you'd say, what drug was the person on it that made it? I yeah, mean, right. You know, because it's it's ridiculous. So it's just like, um, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a giveaway. Like, they did a study. The CBO looked at who was going to benefit from the forgiveness. and uh, And I want to say that they said that 80% of the forgiveness benefit is going to go to people with graduate degrees. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty staggering. And the the reality is, is, you know, we should probably cap student loan debt and, and regulate the price. Like, say, for example, if you look at other countries around the world that allow people to pay based on their income, the problem is, is when you can pay based on your income, there's absolutely no connection to how much you pay at all, because Mm -hmm. it's the same payment regardless of what you borrowed. Right. Mm -hmm. So what the countries have done, like the UK is they put in very stringent price controls on what schools are allowed to charge. And you know, if you want to charge more to fill your class with 900 people, too bad, so sad. So the, the place like NYU that's in this super expensive place to educate people is going to be educating fewer people and the place at University of Iowa is going to be educating more people because right. of the, the price control. Right. Right. So I'm not saying that's a great system, but it's probably a better one than the one we have. So I would just urge the next time that Congress looks at this. Um, It's against the interest of our business to suggest this, but you know, (laughs) it would be good for the country if we cap student loan debt at no more than, say, $200,000, period. Hmm. And then I think what you'd see is a lot of these more aggressive schools would go out of business or they'd be forced to slash their costs and they would complain loudly about it, um, but they would just have to deal with it, you know. So I think that's probably your you know, that's the ideal situation, but I don't really see that happening because the lobby for the higher education, um, you know, association is extremely powerful. Yeah. Um, because it's extremely well funded. I mean, if you have billions and billions of dollars in your endowment funds, uh, for a lot of these bigger schools, you can afford some pretty good lobbyists for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's the, that's the, the concern is that you wipe away all this debt or a large portion of it and you don't control the other supply side of it where they can change the fees whenever they want to. And right. then you're just going to wind up with the exact same thing. I, I heard you talk about one time, which I, it was, was something I hadn't really thought through, but I, I think it's a very valid point is um, if, if this debt is forgiven, it does allow people to buy homes, buy cars, spend money in the, so that they are kind of spinning it back into the population um, more. Uh, but I guess it's just, um, yeah, it's just, it's just hard to wrap my mind around because there's not a good answer. And what, what winds up happening is you've got to play the game that you're, that everybody else is playing.
0: Well, for getting student loan debt for everyone would stimulate the economy, but there would be an enormous cost to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so that's just the reality and, 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 the cost would be borne by the taxpayers who are student loan borrowers because they do pay a lot in taxes Right. but it would also be borne by people who did not borrow anything like the plumber hypothetical plumber that you mentioned. So right. it's just, it's not an easy, um, it's not an easy question. I, I think that it's just, uh, you know, it's just important to realize though that like a lot of these forgiveness programs benefit the wealthiest Americans, uh, not the wealthiest, wealthiest, like it's not a top <laughs> 1% program, obviously. Right. But it is, it is a top, you know, 25% like giveaway, these yeah. forgiveness programs. Um. So the, that's, that's, a, that's a question for policymakers is are you comfortable with, with something that's essentially a, a top 20, you know, I can't say top 25 because we're excluding the one percenters, right? So maybe right. the top, top 22% or something, like it's this, you know, group that makes plenty of money. Like I think probably the better system would be all private loans with some sort of government protections for people whose incomes have been, family incomes are above a certain level. Like yeah. just, you know, people that can qualify for private debt make them qualify for it because then prices would be like a third of what they are now. Yeah. Because banks would refuse to underwrite the the degree. And for lower income students, that's the concern is you don't eliminate access because we want everybody from any background to be able to get an OD degree. Right. So then you would probably need to give a lot more grants or scholarships or access to the financial aid for that group of people. But uh, we don't try to design the new system, even though I I I do have some strong opinions about it, but you know, our primary job is is when somebody comes to us is you've got 200, you have a hundred thousand dollars, you have 150, you have 250, whatever it is, we're going to try to find you as much savings as possible and eliminate your anxiety about your debt. And I would say probably about 90% of people, we find five figures in savings just because the system (laughs) is that complicated.
1: Yeah. I mean that, that, and that's again, you know, um, like you said, you don't write the rules. It's, it's, um, the, oh, you made a point that I was going to, I was going to latch onto that I slipped my mind. Um, but the, uh, the, um, just the idea of, of, um, how do you, how do we, yeah. So yeah, that's what I wanted to, to, to make a point about is, if you have, so if, if we have um, private loans, the reason that, we don't, that that would control some of the costs is because you can default on a private loan. And, and those private companies are not going to invest in a degree that's astronomically out of line cost-wise for what you can pay back over time. Is that so correct? Actually,
0: actually, you cannot default on a private loan. You still so cannot. You still for can't. Bankruptcy? The, no it's still with you with education. So, yes. So, I mean, the reason they do that is because it's unsecured debt. And so that gives you um, a lot of security as the lender to give you people a lower interest rate than they would otherwise give people if it was bankruptable. It's probably not a good thing that it's not bankruptable to be honest. Um, but, uh, but, but, but I think the reason I'm saying that I think prices would be lower if everyone did have private debt is because you're just, you're not going to give somebody more than a hundred thousand dollars for a degree that makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. as as a bank you're just not going to do it right and so I mean the the risk is is that turns the profession into a profession of like all upper middle class people and that's it and that would be a bad thing you know if that happened but um but I think that you know if you could I guess force people to be more price conscious in the decision making then that would help a lot I mean like in reality like looking at the list of optometry schools the the most expensive one in the country is Western University of Health Sciences, according to the government debt. And then the cheapest one or one of the cheaper ones in the country is the SUNY College of Optometry, mm. right? So mm. ideally, and the, the school size, according to the government data that I'm looking at here, 64 in the cohort uh, that they kind of surveyed and then like 140 almost in the, in the most expensive one. Mm. So you see most of the students going to the more expensive schools, uh, and you see the cheaper schools have capped their sizes, which yeah. doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and part of it is that SUNY is a state school, I would imagine, and uh, well, yeah, and they probably
0: they only get a certain number of subsidies or something yep. per person, so they yep. limit it for that reason, right? Yeah. But In like Western. we would be, we would be better off as a country if you would give a lot more of that money to these low cost schools mm-hmm. to subsidize them opening up a lot of, you know, a lot more seats to people. I mean, that would be the way to go too. But that's yeah. just not happening, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, interesting. Well, so Travis, thanks for being on today. Tell me, uh, tell the listeners how they get a hold of you if if they're dealing with this and uh, where we can find you, your podcast, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yes, we have a Student Loan Planner podcast. If you just search those words on any place you listen to podcasts, you'll find our show. We've got a ton of stuff uh, for people that need free help. Uh, and if people are like, well, I've got a lot of money in debt and I'd like custom help, then we'd love to help you with that too. If you go to studentloanplanner.com slash help, you'll be able to read about everything that we do for people it's a few hundred bucks and we make a custom plan it usually saves people five figures
1: awesome awesome thanks for being on i appreciate it thanks for, thanks for having me you're welcome